Hello, welcome to Taking the Universe Around the World. Sorry that I haven't done one for a while, but that's because I've been so busy helping to take the universe around the world that I've not been able to actually record any of the podcasts about taking the universe around the world. I've been around uh, the UK, just getting to the end of uh, the UK tour with Brian Cox, and then we've got uh, three days kind of off, and then we go to Australia. Still in Denver. And uh, waking up today to what will be our penultimate gig of this leg. And uh, we've got Salt Lake City. That's where we're going to end uh, this part of the tour. But uh, Denver is uh, is... Uh, a near imminent end of of this part of the tour. I mean, we start again in about two weeks' time, but uh, there is that kind of excitement of going. Oh, good! We we we've just reached that point now, where you go. Yeah, quite like to just go home for a week. So we are. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, and uh, the day started oddly. I I applied my underarm deodorant so vigorously that the ball came out of the socket. That's uh, never happened to me uh, before. Uh, it wasn't the pinnacle of my day, but I can say that I smelt lovely. I felt very, smelt very, very soapy because I don't use don't use a very manly uh, deodorant because I think that would be too uh, innocuous. Uh, it would kind of create a paradox of me if if I kind of walk past and they go, "Oh, look at that weird kind of creature." And then they go, but why does the weird creature smell manly when clearly it's an ersatz version of what a man is meant to be? So that's why I have just a kind of pretty normal soapy deodorant. Just just so you know, that's all. Um, and uh, also I had to briefly engage in a conversation uh, about lobsters, ethics and misogyny um, online. Um, this, uh, this, this happened, it was because of Jordan Peterson again. I don't, don't know why I have a look at what he's doing, but Jordan Peterson is you know, such an odd... To me, I, I, I think there's a lot of people now who are, are extremists, but somehow the way that the Overton window can kind of keep swinging... People go, oh no, no, no! This is all very normal, and it's like, yeah, I'm not sure it is. So you know that 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 way that I, I think that I started the day accidentally seeing Jordan Peterson. He was weeping with sadness about children being made aware of climate change, as he fears that it will make them depressed. And you know, the, here is Jordan Peterson, who tells you exactly what size of woman is sexually appealing, from his apparently objective point of view it makes it publicly clear that uh one woman in particular is objectively not attractive this is a person on the cover of of, uh, sports uh illustrated as far as i remember and and there's and there's some kind of you know this insidious authoritarian plot apparently to force women that are not thin enough on a terrified and subjugated public oh there was a woman and she was not really skinny and oh blah anyway so it's this weird mix so, so you know he's happy you can people uh publicly about their their body size um but then suddenly he weeps he's he's sad that maybe young people will be depressed well you know what young people might be depressed as well when they see this old guy uh natalie dressed but uh saying that if you go beyond certain structures of being a human then there you you would therefore not within jordan peterson's objective chart of what is allowed to be attractive so i don't trust all of his weeping sometimes um and also i don't really understand that he had this term authoritarian tolerance 
What is authoritarian tolerance? He said, by placing that particular person on the front cover of Sportswear Illustrated or whatever it's called, um, this was part of authoritarian tolerance. It was forcing, you know, when you look at most magazine covers, which all have roughly the same kind of size of person on them, the mere idea there will be someone who was not that size on there is suddenly an authoritarian action as opposed to quite the opposite. The real authoritarianism is surely the fact that people feel, especially people in the public eye, feel under such perpetual scrutiny about what size they are. That seems to be more authoritarian. But yeah, who am I to argue with Jordan and uh, and his his many, many lobster allies? He will, will release the lobsters, which reminds me of a scene in Multiple Maniacs with Divine. But I won't tell you any more about that scene. Look up if you want. If you've never seen John Waters' Multiple Maniacs, you'll find out what I'm talking about. It's always nice to find a, a, a way of putting divine into uh, into a podcast. That phrase authoritarian tolerance, it seems to be like kind of an alibi that he's created. You know, just to show he has no ability to imagine that there is room for any other thinking than what happens in his own mind. And should anyone have any thinking that clashes with his own ideology, then that must have come from some form of authoritarianism. And it kind of, to me, it shows up one of the many problems of of, of Peterson and those who idolise him, which is he kind of lacks the imagination or insight to realise that the authoritarian side of this issue may be the singular shape a woman has had to be in adverts, films and commercial imagery. He sees the broadening of possibilities, the extending of any visibility uh, as an oppression on the status quo. The status quo becomes oppressed by broadening our possibilities. Whenever he sees anything beyond his tastes, he sees that as a plot against him. Something that we have to, I suppose, be very wary of. It, you know, making sure that we don't just care uh, about our own feelings, but we uh, we care about other people's feelings too, and realise that they will. It's just like that baby thing, isn't it? That there's a certain age of a child where they cannot imagine that if they bit you, they can't imagine that you feel pain because they didn't feel pain when they bit you. And uh, and it feels to me like some of these kind of commentators uh, that that's what they're like. They they can only feel their own pain. And they cannot feel anyone else's pain. And I would, it's kind of the sadness of whenever I see Jordan Peterson, it cuts this kind of very melancholy figure, you know, the, the, as if it's hinting at an internal battle that he is fighting with himself and to try and make sure that he's something that maybe he's not. And he's trying to drag us all into his own internal mental um, kind of, you know, torture and feuding. And sometimes people say to me, they say, oh, yeah, but he really cares about the young. But again, it seems there's a specific group of the young, in particular young males that he cares about. But there also seems to be a very large number of progressive young people, both male and female, who he rails against. So, again, he cares about some young people. I noticed that if I ever comment on him, which is is, is rarely, and I apologise for banging on about this for so long, but the, the language his admirers use is immediately that combative, has he triggered you? Has he triggered you? And you think, no, I'm not triggered. I'm just pointing out that I, I disagree. What, because you mean triggered? No, 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 I'm not being triggered. I just just disagree. You know, that... that uh, Anyway, the good thing is Jordan Peterson plays a very small part of my day in Denver, despite the amount of your time I've wasted due to a brief argument about Jordan Peterson. Um, and uh, and that's it. Walking through Denver, I still tried to piece together what it looked like to me in 1988. 
I can get some shoddy semblance of my past experience, but not much of it. Uh, but then there is one moment. There is one moment where I see something which then I get that rush of memories. And that is seeing a lone house that sits in a car park right in the middle of Denver. And it looks somewhere between the house in Pixar's Wonderful Up um, and a little bit then of a kind of pen and inked Edward Gorey. So it's a, a mix. And in fact, I remember when I first saw Up, the f- first thing that I thought when I saw the house is, it's like the house I saw in 1988 in Denver. This is the... Uh, Curry Chukovich House. It's a kind of lean, red-bricked and enigmatic. It was a law firm, more recently an Airbnb, and now it's up for lease. And in 1988, it was even more alone than now. But the fact that around all of these shining, gleaming, huge buildings here is a kind of a building that looks like a kind of three up, three down. Uh, and it's just one of, it, immediately when you see something like that, and especially in the middle of a car park, you just think, this holds a story. And if there is not a story that lives within it. It is the perfect structure to project your own story on and around. I also found out about Denver's International Church of Cannabis, but uh, too late for a visit. Members of the International Church of Cannabis are known as elevationists. Through ritual guided by spiritual practice, church members use the sacred flower to reveal the best version of self, discover a creative voice, and enrich their community with the fruits of that creativity. Unlike other belief systems, there is no need to convert to elevationism. It claims no divine law, no unquestionable doctrine, and no authoritarian structure. As I'm unable to go to the International Church of Cannabis, I spend the morning in Denver's Museum of Art. It has this fantastic collection of First Nation art spread over the floors. And that's what I love whenever I wander around galleries like this. One of the first things I realise is how parochial the art I grew up with is. And I think that's true for many of us. By by the time we first see art from other cultures, we already feel that it's so alien to our experience that that we sometimes walk away, that we we don't allow our imagination to just keep staring until there is that moment of actual engagement. And the older I am, the more I've come to realise how important, fascinating and enlightening the stories that live within it are. Even when I first look at sometimes whether it's blocks of colour, whether it's those things which appear to be, uh, to my perception, very abstract. For too long, I think one of the things that we do culturally is we we dismiss so many things as primitive just because they're not as us. And I realise how naive I've been not to see how much kind of things like casual white supremacy there is in so many places. You know, I look back at the atheist boom from a few years back And sometimes now I look at it and I see something in certain corners and sometimes not just in the corners that just smacks of a kind of racial superiority as well. Even more so now some of the spokespeople have uh, become kind of a brand beyond their godlessness alone. I look at the photographic exhibition, which is all women photographers. There's a quote from Diane Arbus, one of my favourites. I really believe there are things nobody would see unless I photographed them. And there's also work of Lisette Model, uh, Dorothea Lange, and uh, people I've never seen before, Tomoko Sawada's uh, ID400. She's wonderful. It's a series of passport photos of herself. In each one, she projects a different sense of identity. What she wanted to show was that her appearance could be changed easily, but her personality could not. What we project onto a photograph of a person may well be wider the mark. 
it kind of reminds me of the, the 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 famous that kind of gloomy photograph of Kafka that is so often used on the cover of books that you know just go oh there's Kafka with this kind of you know sad mouse face you know a sense of anxiety and alienation you know that we always expect him to come out of a teapot at a Mad Hatter's party just oh the sad sad face and uh, and then you actually find out that that photograph was his ID photograph for his job in insurance and you know most people's ID photographs don't display that much joie de vivre and then you see photos of him larking around on the beach and you start to see that this you know he's not merely this two-dimensional person merely filled with anxiety fear of his father existential angst there was also larking about there was also his enormous collection of pornography that is now uh, kept somewhere in oxford university i believe um so i, I loved yeah tomoko sawada's id 400 was great and then there was ruth ruth orkin and ruth orkin said of her work if my photographs make the viewer feel what i did when i first took them isn't this funny terrible moving beautiful then i've accomplished my purpose and I kind of think, you know, that that's one of the important parts of public self-expression. Like going back to the Diane Arbus thing where she talks about, you know, the pictures that if she had not managed to capture that moment, no one would have seen them. And I think that's what I can sometimes love about stand-up or playwriting or whatever it might be, which it, there's a moment where you think, how many people are saying this out aloud? Well, I'm going to say it out loud. To, to throw into the room those kind of moments which are unexpected but at the same time have uh welcoming uh and friendly tentacles of kind of embrace as well for the people who are sat there i also see an astonishing photograph uh of the women of the zapotec um and uh this is i forget now the photographer i think it was a martha's one and it's it's this wonderful image of the the, the women of zapotec just says big strong politicized emancipated wonderful women and uh, and then there's also another brilliant one have a look at this one called it's marina uh yampolsky's death also drinks coffee I had a very limited amount of time this morning, but I had about two hours to try and do the, the it's such a big art gallery. It's so great. I managed to get the, the disruption exhibition, and that was great. Each room had a different song playing, including work by the New York Dolls, Public Enemy, Lady Gaga. And then that was combined with artworks that linked with themes of those songs. So uh, Michael Jew's Headless. It's a room full of headless Buddha statues and hovering above the dolls' heads on kind of on, on, on thin nylon wire are the heads of things like Pee Wee Herman, Sesame Street characters and other symbols of Western pop culture. And, uh, and the idea of Michael Jew's work is um, that apparently there's an enormous number of Buddha statues were decapitated because the Buddha head was an easy piece of booty to take with you. So you would just knock the head off and you would take it back to your culture or whatever, uh, maybe sell it, maybe display it, whatever. But the rest of the sta- the rest of the headless statue would remain. Um, and there was there was a lot of other stuff there. There was uh, um, Augustina Woodgate's No Rain, No Rainbows, which is like stitched pelts of secondhand soft toys made into a kaleidoscopic quilt. So, so I loved No Rain, No Rainbows. Um, 
But then, yeah, time time was running out. I had an appointment with Brian and Steph, and I promised that I would go to the gym that day. And uh, I had my alibi prepared for athletic failure. Uh, oh, the air is very thin up in Denver, isn't it? So, uh, and we're very high here, so that's why uh, I uh, the, and also you know combating the curvature of space time. I, I just not able to do it with my usual aplomb. But actually, it was all fine. Um, but Brian, though, interestingly, was not competitive today. So the slightly thinner air removes a certain element of alpha and uh even when at one point i was lifting the same weights as him he didn't feel he had to move up a few more kilograms in fact on one machine i even went higher than him but i just kept that quiet because you know we've got on okay so far i don't want to turn this into an oliver reed alan bates dh lawrence kind of scenario in fact i wish i hadn't put that image in your head sorry the Paramount Theatre is where we were last night to see OMD, and uh, and now we're there again for our own show. And Brian, I could still see, has the excitement from from the night before. And it, there was a lovely moment where um, one of the crew who'd also been working the night before uh, while I'm doing my sound check goes, "Oh, by the way, uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. They were they were so happy to meet you uh, yesterday." And then Brian heard that and he came over going, oh no, they weren't happy to meet him. They were happy to meet me. No, 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 it won't be him they were happy to meet because I'm I'm very famous in the UK and so they were happy to meet me, which was a really, really weird moment. And uh, I've not really seen him do something like that before, but uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. And then, so the Denver audience that night, uh, just lovely. And uh, Brian didn't manage to achieve his goal of getting them to clap along to the equation of the Schwarzschild radius uh, in the same way they clapped along to Andy McCluskey's uh, windmilling uh, around Tesla girls. Um, but it was, st- it was still a pretty good night. Tonight's audience questions included, Brian Cox, if we had the technology to fly into a black hole with what we know today, would you take the trip Listening to Brian discuss the idea that we are all part of quantum entanglement, it made me think of Joseph Campbell's theory of the archetypal imagination. Can Dr. Cox discuss these two theories in terms of human relationships to the universe? No, no, he couldn't. And my little brother wants to know what your favourite colour is. By the way, it was green. Where I am now in today's Taking the Universe Around the World, is on my way to Salt Lake City, and I'm waking up in a hotel, having had my first new book anxiety dream. And I, the new book was, I suppose, not imminent at that point, though it is imminent now, and I just had one of those panicky dreams where I'd suddenly been invited to a big event, and it was a major event that would mean that I could sell my book, and I spoke really well, though I did speak tangentially because some parts of my dreams are reasonably accurate and then at the end of the event I sold no books and I was really angry because I thought I've taken all this time out and I, and I put on a really good speech and yet no one's no one's bought a book and I took time out for my family life and I've achieved nothing so I think there was also possibly a kind of guilt dream there as well because of course I have been away from my family for quite a while and uh, it was a good reminder that dream as well of why I turned down hosting an event on the Sunday that I got back to the UK so I only have 10 days back at home then I'm on the road again and I finally got better 
at defeating that voice that says you've just got to do everything I mean, I mean look look I, I, I know things are okay at the moment but you never know when there's, you're never going to be offered anything so even though this gig's only for seven pounds there might be someone really important inside that gig you know there might be my big time from big time tv and uh he's going to go oh you know i really enjoyed that talk you just gave uh, so uh, i'd like to make you very very famous on television so maybe i better do that this this could be the event that leads to a big deal with uh, with hollywood uh or with netflix uh or with pontins camber sands so I've just, now in middle age, started to err onto the correct side of regret. Rather than regretting I may have missed an opportunity, I think of the future regret when my son is grown up and our adventures are fewer, though I hope there will be some. And uh, I think, oh, I thought I was going to meet Mike Big Time from Big Time TV, so that's why I didn't go to that thing that my son wanted me to go to. So I'm trying to get better anyway. So today, though, all of us feel kind of a bit gritty, a little bit fuggish, and uh, we're on our way to the final gig of this particular leg of the American tour, Salt Lake City. Then back to Edmonton 10 days later. Today's breakfast waiter in Denver is just the right side of friendly. He compliments me on my shoelaces, which are excellent shoelaces, and I admire a picture of his dog. I discover that he and his wife are foster parents and that he hopes that cold snap is not coming this weekend as he's just planted his garden. Denver has good people. Last night's barman had that air of an vaguely optimistic George Carlin and carried himself like he had a story to tell. And he also had a perfect memory of what we drunk the night before. Which reminds me of the George Carlin joke that I just reread the other day about the world slowly falling apart. The other day I poured some milk in my cereal and I'm certain it said, snap, crackle, fuck off. Anyway, so I don't really do George Carlin's voice, as you can see. I just do a kind of uh, grumpy, kind of, you know, American voice. And I know that's not Carlin. Anyway, uh, you can say that you pricked your finger, but not you fingered your prick, etc. Now, Brian gets through the airport very, very quickly because, of course, he knows how to travel unimpeded and goes through a slightly different gate to the rest of us. And Steph and I went towards a more normal security, kind of moaning and going, oh, but it's going to take really ages and it's going to be hideous. And we prepared for the worst and, uh, and we got the best. Straight through and the security staff even smiled. I think that's probably because Steph does her spotlight smile when she goes through any kind of security barrier. So suddenly it's showbiz. Suddenly uh, she's written by somewhere between Cole Porter and Stephen Sondheim the moment that she gets towards any form of metal detection or similar. Waiting for the plane, I listen to a businessman. For me, 2% teamwork is insignificant because I think we can sell that message as we're adding additional opportunity for discretion. I have no idea what that means. Or maybe he said it, for me, 2% teamwork is insignificant because I think we can sell that messages we are adding additional opportunity for discretion. I still have no idea what that means in whatever accent I hear it. I'm sat next to a stranger on the plane again. So I make the decision to avoid reading Haunted America, the fantastic book from the brilliant exhibition that I went to a couple of nights ago. And the reason I avoid it is because some of the pictures in it, well, for instance, if it had fallen open on the page of the artist Carolee Schneeman removing a scroll from her vagina, it just 
might have had a level of kind of embarrassment and uh, so instead I read another issue of the excellent Canadian magazine about fanzines Broken Pencil which was all about how fascist hate groups have used fanzines so it was kind of a choice I suppose it's a weird choice isn't it it was a choice um, between the scroll and the vagina and uh, and the swastika I don't know what that says about me uh, by the way it's not pro the fascist use of, of fanzines Broken Pencil I make numerous notes of things I should learn more about as I read Broken Pencil. Notes include that I must find out more about David Lester's Profit Against Slavery, about Benjamin Lay, a Quaker activist with dwarfism who fought for the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of all living things from the tyranny of others. A slug story by Mandy and Hannah Kujawa, which stemmed from one of Hannah's friends saying she had a great idea for a kid's story about a slug who stays a slug. Michael McLennan's album Time Machines, a work of grief dealing with the loss of a bandmate and of his idol Daniel Johnston. So when a magazine's filled with things like that, I decide that I must read Broken Pencil more. So if any of you know how I can subscribe to Broken Pencil, the Canadian magazine while in the UK, please tell me more. And if you don't know about Broken Pencil, find out more about it. It's brilliant. Our driver from the airport tells us that Denver Airport is renowned for its ghosts and hauntings. Brian is having none of it and gives a quick lecture about how the unexplained is just that. Unexplained. Mystery of cause does not mean we must venture straight to phantasms and spirits. And of course, as you know, well of course you can't have ghosts because they break the second law of entropy. I try to find the middle ground. And I quote Alan Moore's From Hell yet again about how the one place that the gods or the ghosts are undoubtedly real is in the minds of men, or words to that effect. Steph, Brian and I go for a walk, and within minutes, I had been told that I would find no wonderful bookshops in Salt Lake City, that finally I would not have to buy another suitcase on the last day of the trip. So Steph, Brian and I go for a walk down the high street and within less than five minutes we reach Utah Books and Magazines, a used bookstore that is 106 years old as indeed are some of the dolls and books in the windows. They let me go in, in fact they insist I go in. Steph immediately comments on the smell. It's old books and old paper. Musty but not offensive, especially not offensive to me. Brian soon finds a book about Henry Winkler and I am soon on the floor rooting through film tie-in paperbacks. This promise that there would be no temptation in Salt Lake City is very, very wrong. So the books began with Winifred Van Atta's shock treatment, more terrifying than Psycho, more revealing than The Caretakers. Uh, I don't know what The Caretakers is, but I will find out how revealing that book is. Then it was a copy of two screenplays by Jean Cocteau, published by Pelican, followed by Phase 4, which I'm sure you all know Phase 4. It's uh, uh, and, and Ants Go Mad, or indeed Ants Become Sane and Take Over Humanity-based film starring Nigel Davenport. And some of you might remember Nigel Davenport for shows such as Howard's Way, though I actually saw Nigel Davenport as uh, King Lear in Oxford. And of course he has a son called Jack, who's also done quite well. Phase 4 basically says a race of super ants delivers an ultimatum to mankind adapt or die 
You may remember that the film was directed by Saul Bass, who of course is also very well known for his opening credit sequences and his work on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Now, at that point, everything just went crazy because I found the first US publication of Peter Watkins' The War Game, a TV play about nuclear war that was banned by the BBC for 20 years. I didn't even know there was a book version of it. And then there was the US film tie-in for Get Carter, which includes a glossary so you can understand some of the language, which is both from London and Scunthorpe-based slang. Dick Gregory's From the Back of the Bus, Hedy Lamar's Ecstasy and Me. A first edition of a Charles Beaumont, who, of course, Charles Beaumont, if you don't know, wrote many wonderful stories for The Twilight Zone, a brilliant writer, and also wrote uh, something that I like a great deal, um, which is a film called Brain Dead, with Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton and Bud Court. Uh, amongst others you should seek it out uh, I got a grubby but interesting illustrated edition of Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising and then it just went on and on and on and on and I even bought a copy of The King of Kings a book all about the Jesus movie which also contains separate photographs of a very 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 blue-eyed messiah in Jeffrey Hunter this huge stack was $64 tremendously well spent i loved the beautiful chaos of utah books and magazines there's kind of an order it definitely is ordered but it also has that exciting ramshackle quality that means that the unexpected is always a thrilling possibility and it's run by a brother and sister who you just listen to what they're talking about and it's very very funny as he's really grumpy and uh she's just got a lot of stories as well about various things involving her own surgery and then various stories of kind of people out on the street who well i were the language was frankly at times rather blue for a bookshop anyway i left knowing there was more in that shop that i hadn't found but that's just the way it goes i better make sure i never go back hmm my favourite conversation between the owners was uh, about a man who was so drunk that he could not mount his bicycle and uh, a woman who was utterly furious with him as she watched him repeatedly fall back and forth on his deflating tyres. Rather than being given a carrier bag, I was given a proper shoulder bag which included three new pens as they come from the owner's brother's company that is going out of business. I walked proudly down Main Street. I started working out my plans to get all those lovely darn books FedExed home. Brian and Steph thoroughly enjoyed watching me in my natural habitat, though after 25 minutes they were like, yeah, that's enough of that, and the musty smell was too much for them, and so they went off. But I then go and meet them in a yoghurt shop. They tell me that they'd imagined returning to the shop and just found it boarded up, any hint of me long gone I had been sucked into a ghost shop and now my soul would be ricocheting around a library from hell in my version they would return and find me now behind the counter as if I'd always been there as if I'd always been the bookseller like the priest that guards the gate of hell I would now be the sentinel of the books and ephemera that's kind of a reference by the way to a Michael Winner film that's probably my favourite Michael Winner film Tomorrow I have plans to have breakfast at Mark of the Bistro, a diner that combines veganism with Satanism by the looks of things. From what I've seen of Salt Lake City so far, I like it very much. And I didn't just spend the whole afternoon in the bookshop, but I did spend half the afternoon in the bookshop and then I just roamed around. I know that it's built on a single religion and I know that religion has, shall we say, some eccentricities. I mean, then again, I cannot think of any religion free of eccentricities. That's just part of the religious package and every now and again I thought perhaps of some of the beliefs that would not sit well with me but there is 
a smiley happiness there is a 1970s or 1960s apple pie advert here there is a sense of that early all of those kind of adverts that you would see uh in the 1950s and early 1960s for the perfection of suburbia smiling faces happy frilly aprons hot pies but I also see just a little bit of the Stepford Wives and Rosemary's Baby when I sometimes see the happy couples walk by. Or maybe I just see Denton of Richard O'Brien's Shock Treatment. Maybe that's close to the mark. I hope you've seen Shock Treatment. You'll find conference rooms and children's playgrounds. Denton is a real okay town. Civic pride and civic... Anyway, you know that. I kept seeing that opening scene from that kind of movie where the couple who have just moved to the area are invited to a drinks party where the beaming friendliness is ominous. Oh my, I, I think that punch was a, a little stronger than I thought, Jean. Don't worry, Lucy. You go and lie down on my bed and ignore any realistic dreams you may have about, well, priapic goblins. I think this might also have been caused by watching the whole series of Severance in the last couple of weeks that might have had some effect. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.